Hello, my friends. Welcome to another Third Option Wisdom podcast. This is episode number four. And this one is called An Elegant Exit. I guess alternatively, it could be called An Elegant Ending. So what I'd like to do on this Memorial Day is talk about what I mean by an elegant exit and then share some stories of my own, a few of my own exits. Um, I'm aware of a couple of things about this episode. In my mind, it didn't seem like it made sense to talk about exits yet, endings yet. And as I sat with it, I came to realize that the reason that ending things is so important is because it creates space for something new. It's very difficult to change things and create new things open to unexpected possibilities when we keep doing something the same old way, keep something going that's taking up space, whether it's in our minds, if it's real estate in our life, if it is any anticipation of something that we have to carry. Letting go of what no longer serves has a real value. And I thought I would do this several days ago. That was my plan. And here we are on Memorial Day. And I realized that's actually appropriate in a way because every time we do make a change, it means that we let go of something when we exit, when we end something we let go of something that no longer serves and that process of letting go and the fact that that pattern, that job, that relationship was once a part of your life, both things matter, both that it existed and that you choose to move on from it. And part of Memorial Day is honoring that which has served or those who have served. And in this case, I think there's something to be said for honoring that which served you once upon a time, even if it no longer does. So let's talk about what I mean by an elegant exit. Ultimately, I believe an elegant exit is any ending that represents you being in integrity with yourself. So if ending something, closing out a relationship, leaving a job, changing a pattern of behavior, 
a new way of entering the world, which inherently means no longer entering in the same old way. Any change like that that you make because it lines up with who you are now is an elegant exit. It might be messy. It might be painful. It might be awkward. And as long as it lines up with your integrity, with the truth of who you be now, I believe that ultimately is the elegance. And when I say who you be now, for it to line up with the moment that you are in now, I say it on purpose because I believe that we can fall into a trap of not updating our perspectives of ourselves, of not recognizing how we have changed. And so if we make decisions based on our old selves, something's gonna feel out of alignment. When we make decisions on who we are now, you're going to know it's going to line up for you. You're going to have that room. Uh, if you can sort of imagine like a, a bolt of light going right through your being, you're going to have some sense of that, even though it's hard, even though it's uncomfortable or awkward or messily done. This is not so much about the form as it is about finding the place in you where it resonates with your truth. Now the stories I'm going to share with you are just a handful of exits that I have engaged in in my life. Like you, there have been many. And some, I would say, I managed better than others. And yet, each in its own way fits under the umbrella of an elegant ending because it resonated with the truth of who I was at that time. So with that, let me share a couple of experiences with you. When I was a senior in high school, probably mm, sometime after Christmas break, maybe mm, we'll even say March. So I was 17 years old and I had long been friends for the for several years with uh, 
schoolmate, Julie. And Julie and I added Christine into our mix. And the three of us were buddies and we would hang out at each other's houses and do things. And it was kind of lovely. I mean, Julie and I had had many, many times together of sleepovers and uh, outings and so forth. But when we added Christine, it was a nice little trio. And it had been typical for me in high school to only have a couple of friends, one or two friends at a time. Introvert that I am, I was never one of the cool kids. I was never one of the popular girls. And having one or two friends suited me just fine. So as our trio matured, what I started to notice is that a strange thing would occur when Julie and Christine were together that hadn't happened when it was just Julie and I. Somehow the conversation would turn towards other people in a critical and gossipy kind of way. So, oh, that person looks terrible with their hair dyed that way. Or he shouldn't wear those pants, they're too short for him. Or that person is a total dweeb. Or whatever the criticisms were, whatever the latest gossip was and the judgment about that, they would make a point of discussing it. And I found myself really out of sorts about this. And I said something a couple of times and they continued, they persisted in their way of connecting with each other, I guess. But it didn't line up for me. And at one point it was during a lunch break and we were sitting in a hallway area and I just told them off and said, I don't want to hear this anymore. I don't want to be part of this thing of constantly criticizing other people, you know, karmically, it's a bad idea. And it's, people could say the same horrible things about us. So why would we do that? And as somebody who had had horrible things said about me, I knew it wasn't cool. I knew it wasn't okay. I didn't want to participate. And it meant that for the last several months of school, if that was March or April, so April, May, June, probably. I didn't really have any friends in high school. I had, you know, passing acquaintances and so forth. I was not completely ostracized. But when it came to the senior outing day, which, okay, in 1985, a senior outing day was the whole class going to uh, 
this, it wasn't like it is these days. It was just like a park kind of thing. Um, where people would play frisbee and have barbecues and maybe do paddle boating or things like that. And because I had sold so many magazines earlier in the year, earning lots and lots of credits because I raised so much money, I raised more than anyone else in that fundraiser for our class, it meant that all of the senior activities I got to do for free, which was great because we didn't have money for me to pay for everything. So I went to the senior trip day and didn't have to pay for anything and spent the entire time by myself. I got my ticket to the senior prom went out and got my dress and went by myself and danced with all of the teachers and everyone else's dates. I went to graduation and my mom and some of her friends came. And when it was over, my mom and I went out to dinner at the Dock and Dine restaurant in Old Saybrook, Connecticut. And that was it. I did not go to any social gatherings with friends. There were no sleepovers, any big parties. I wasn't part of any of that. So giving up those two friends was really painful. Being at that senior outing and not knowing what to do with myself, just my stomach sort of dropping a little lower and a little lower and a little lower and wanting to have a good time and not really knowing how to do that when I didn't have anyone to share it with. I did manage to have fun at my prom but I had hoped to have a date. I was perfectly happy with our dock and dine dinner. That was lovely. It was kind of a fancier place for us. And I think at that point, I just numbed myself out so that I wouldn't feel hurt that there was no other activity for me to participate in. And after all of those years of school to have it end in such a floppy kind of way was pretty disappointing. And there was still the need to hide that disappointment, to power through it. But I'll tell you even now, if my choice had been to jump on the critical gossip bandwagon or to roll with the pain, 
I would still roll with the pain because that aligned with who I was. And even though how I handled it with my friends may not have been especially well done, I think it was still an elegant exit because it honored who I was. Years later, when I was hmm, probably 19 or 20, I had a job working for Personnel Systems International. Now, I had moved to Boston when I was 18, exactly one year after graduation, I moved to Boston from Connecticut. And here's one of the funny things about that move. If I had had very, very close ties to friends at home in Old Saybrook, I don't know that it would have been so easy for me to make the move to Boston. And I don't mean it was an easy move. I just mean it may have been harder to pick up and go. So that closing of my high school career with so little in the way of friends opened a doorway for me to move to Boston a year later because I didn't feel attached to staying in Old Saybrook. All right, so now I've been living in Boston for uh, a couple of years, probably. So probably I'm 20-ish. And I get this job at Personnel Systems International as a recruiter. And one of the placements that I made ended up being this really high-end placement. Most of what I did were data entry, secretarial, administrative type positions, not very high-paying positions. This was like a controller type position of a big company and it was a very big commission for me at the time. I think it was like $9,000 or something amazing. And because I had a, a good month between that placement and one or two other placements, I qualified for a bonus of something like $900, which in the you know, late 80s, that was a real amount of money, especially for me who had no skill managing money. Having never had any money, I didn't really have any idea how to make money last, how to make it stretch. And so at the time I was living with a coworker 
in a rent-controlled apartment in Brookline. And when the placement was completed, I realized I was done with this job. It wasn't really where I wanted to be anymore. I had already gotten, because of the money challenge, I had a part-time job selling advertising for the Alston Brighton Journal in the evenings. And that little newspaper created by my friend Tom was only in business for a short while. And then Tom decided to attempt to sell the business to another newspaper, a larger group. And one of those was the Tab newspaper. And the Tab said, you know what, Tom? We actually are not ready to have an Alston Brighton edition. However, if you have any salespeople, we'd be happy to talk to them. And since I was one of the only salespeople for that little paper, I did talk to them and was offered a job that suited me better. So I gave my notice at personnel systems. And the way that I remember that happening is you don't really give notice there. They don't, once you're done, they just walk you to the door. So I think I just packed up my desk and said, okay, I'm done. And I left. And maybe a week or so later, I go back for my final check and my bonus check. And on the back of the check, the commission check, it was written that this constitutes final payment. No other monies are due upon signing of this check. And so that meant that for me to sign the check and deposit the check so that I could pay my rent and my car payment and for food, I had to forego the $900 bonus. And because money was such a struggle for me, I really needed that money. It, it basically had already been spent. And I made a huge scene in talking with one of the two owners, yelling and screaming and basically trying to bully this man, Gil, into giving me the bonus money because as a good faith, in a good faith way, I had earned it and yet still he would, was completely unwilling to pay me the additional money. So I left and I went to speak with the Department of Labor only to learn that bonuses are not required. I had no claim on that bonus money, even though it had been in writing, it's still a bonus, so it doesn't matter. So I signed the check, deposited it, was out the $900 and moved on with the rest of my life. Now, 
that was a really ugly scene. It was completely outrageous. And the outrageousness was because I was so scared. My survival felt so very threatened by not getting this money that I believed I was going to be getting. And it would have been great if I had known that there was another way to approach this with him. Maybe if I had tried it a different way, tried talking to him a different way, perhaps I would have walked out with the money. Perhaps I would have walked out without the money, but without having created a scene. I don't know the answer to that. I think the manner in which I exited was not particularly elegant. And yet, even for as ugly and triggered as I was, it was still in alignment with me to leave, to close that door and open another door. And in that way, it was elegant. The manner was icky, but the truth of my completion there was real for me. And the amazing thing is by leaving that job, I went to work for a company that I worked for several years, the Tab newspaper, where I developed so many friendships, some lasting for years and years and years. If, if I had made more money at personnel systems, I never would have gone for that part-time job at the Alston Brighton Journal. And my friend Tom and I are still friends now, today. I can't quite figure out how long ago that was, maybe over 30 years ago. That's a long time. And then I went to work at the tab and I had all of these friends. And it's where I met my husband because I sold him advertising. If I hadn't closed the door on that job that no longer fit for me, I would not have opened what I opened for myself. That was what I needed to do. I needed to be true to myself in that moment to move to the next thing. And there's no way that I could have possibly foreseen what that next thing would have looked like. Several years later, I left the tab because advertising had gotten difficult because the recession was happening. And I was looking for a recession proof industry. And my creative brain decided that the funeral service industry was the way to go. So I went to school for funeral service for a couple of years. And I, I guess it was maybe like a year and a half. And I also got an internship. That's part of the requirement, a two year internship at JS Waterman and Sons 
in Kenmore Square in Boston. I don't think it exists there anymore, but it did back then. And after working there for a couple of years with the very male-dominated, misogynistic experience of being there, I was probably making a little bit more than I could have made at McDonald's. And my job had changed several times uh, because I was a slightly more mature intern than some of the others. And so I had gone from doing all the usual things, which would be helping to park cars and pick up death certificates and collect the deceased from the medical examiner and um, a host of other intern duties to working what they referred to as the desk, which is really the highest position that existed at that time for an intern, um, organizing all of the funerals, what was needed for every single funeral and creating the puzzle of that every day. And when I completed my stint doing that, I was offered a chance to do pre-need. So I would meet with potential clients and get them signed up for a funeral in advance. That part was actually incredibly fun because I got to hear all of these people's life stories. That was just delightful. But I was still only making a little bit more than I would made it than I would have made at McDonald's. And I was still required to work on call a couple of weeks a month, which meant being paged in the middle of the night to pick up a hearse, meet up with a partner, and collect any folks who had died at home in the night. And that was fair weather or foul. So I had passed my national board exam and my state exam was coming up, but I didn't qualify to take the state exam yet because I owed my school money. I had gone from living in a rent-controlled apartment in Cambridge, where I had lived for several years. Because I was making so little money, I could no longer afford electricity, so I had my electricity turned off. I could no longer afford the rent, so I got evicted. I could no longer afford my car, so it got repossessed. And I ended up living at one of the funeral homes for a while. And then eventually moved in with Mark. When 
I had explained to Mark, you know, he could see all these things that were going on. And he said, Joanne, why don't you come and bring your talents to work for my company? He had a construction company at the time. It's like, there are things that you could do that I believe would really help the business. And he was willing to pay me a real wage. And so I figured, all right, well, I can't go any farther in funeral service until I can pay off the money that I owe to the school. I have no way to make more money to pay off the school. So I guess this might be the path for me. And I had had a conversation with one of the owners, Jay Waring, and he said, you know, we might be able to co-sign a loan for you if you want to check into that, and then you could pay off your, you know, pay off the school. And I said, you know, I really appreciate that, but I can't afford to pay a loan is the problem. And he said, well, you know, just check it out, see what you can do. And it was a very generous offer. I mean, they liked me, they wanted me to stay, but they weren't willing to actually pay me any more money to make it possible for me to stay. And Joe Allen, who was the regional manager of the Northern funeral homes for this company, he was very fond of me. And when I officially gave my notice to him, he said, yeah, I, I saw the writing on the wall and it's really a bummer. And I totally understand. And then he reported that I was leaving to the owners. And the next thing I knew, Joe and I were driving down to Fall River, where the headquarters was, to meet with the owners and the regional manager of the Southern Funeral Homes and another funeral director and Joe, the regional director for my region and me. And the purpose of this meeting was really to dress me down for leaving. I remember one of the, it was the regional manager for the Southern area, Gail had said, well, obviously you just never really wanted to be a funeral director. <laughs> and I could feel my body trembling with the deep knowing that I really did want to. Having gone through the schooling, having let go of so many things that I liked, like my apartment and my car, having experienced uh, a variety of different kinds of sexual harassment with the male dominated industry, having stood out in the freezing cold with no coat to park cars. Yeah, I had worked really hard. I had an incredible grade average. I had done really well on my national board exams. 
I just didn't have the money to stay with it. So with my trembling body, I just said, yeah, I did. And I can't afford to keep going with it. And Jay Waring had said, will we even offer to co-sign a loan for you? And I said, I know. And I'm really grateful for that. But I couldn't afford to pay it. So there was this catch-22. I can only make more money if I become a funeral director. I can only become a funeral director if I pay off the money that I owe to the school. I didn't have a way out. And this is going to afford me an opportunity to have enough money to live. And so when we left, Joe just turned to me and said, don't worry about anything that they said. Don't even listen. They were just looking for their pound of flesh. And you're going to do great. You're going to land on your feet no matter what which was really kind. It was really nice to have someone in my corner at a time when I felt quite vulnerable, even though I was leaving because I was being taken to task for leaving. So was that an elegant exit? Again, I think it met me where I met myself where I was in the moment. It was a hard path. And if I had not left Waterman's, if I had stayed in funeral service, which would not have been completely out of the question because the part that I loved the most was working with the people, hearing their stories, counseling the grieving. Those are all the parts I loved. The embalming, not as much. The getting up in the middle of the night, definitely not. But if I had stayed there, I probably wouldn't be doing the work I'm doing now. I maybe would have gotten just enough of it there to satisfy the bug in me. When I was speaking at a in a podcast a bit ago. I mentioned that there was a therapist that I had worked with at a workshop named Prita. And she had wrapped her arms around me when I was just a walking head and said, sweetie, what's happening in your body? And that opened a whole doorway for me, a whole new world of actually residing in my own body, attuning to my body, 
It was a long freaking journey. It continues to be. And it was a very big paradigm shift for me. And so I worked for, with Preeta as my therapist for many years. And I mentioned about the miscarriage that led me to really question, what am I doing here? What, what should I be doing for work or what contribution could I be making to the world that is different from selling real estate as I was at the time? And Preeta helped me to see that working with people more in alignment with how I do now is really what I was meant to be doing. And then I went through a four-year coaching program, coaching and counseling program that she taught and also did an internship of sorts by supporting the workshops that I had been going to as a participant for so many years. So the workshop that she wrapped her arms around me, there was a slightly different incarnation of that. It had become a residential workshop, meaning people would stay overnight at a retreat facility. And for a number of years, I supported those workshops as a, uh, they were referred to as helpers. Those are with little air quotes, if you can hear those air quotes. So there would, there would be the primary facilitators, and there were three to five, depending upon the particular workshop. And then each primary facilitator would have one or often two helpers. Usually one helper would be quite experienced and the second helper would be a little bit newer, a little less experienced. And I did that for many years again. So altogether, I was probably involved in these workshops in some way or another, either as a participant or as a helper for 15 or 20 years. So it meant that I had built a real community and Preeta had become very important to me, as had the other facilitators and the other helpers and the participants. Some of the people who participated or were helpers were, or even, uh, well, some of the people who were participants or helpers were my clients, my coaching clients. Some of the helpers and facilitators had become part of the Consciousness Collaborative, which is a network of healers that I had started. And I had just many, many different kinds of relationships and community built within this network uh, related to Preta and the workshops. And along the way, in the last few years that I supported them, something was off and I could not figure out what it was. And so I tried to talk to Preeta about different things that I thought it might be. Maybe it's because people can, were being allowed to go off campus from the retreat center 
in the middle of a retreat so that they could go out drinking. Maybe it was because the facilitators and the helpers were in this odd hierarchy that just felt off. Maybe it was because there would be times when people, at least one person I remember, brought in boxes of alcohol into the dining area of the retreat center in the evening, in kind of the lull time of the retreat. And these retreats were intended to be, to stir the pot and to allow old habits and ways of thinking to be recalibrated for a different pattern to emerge, a healthy pattern to emerge. So presence is really what they were about. And burying oneself in alcohol or food or sex or whatever the case might be it just seemed like there wasn't that much safety being held for those who were participating. And it didn't matter how many different times and ways I attempted to discuss this with, with Preta, it, it just didn't get better. And while I had worked with Preeta for many years, our work together had grown stale for me. And so um, at the suggestion of another facilitator of that group, Adrian, who I had done work with, uh, he was a coach. And so I had done some work with him being my coach. I had also done some professional colleague type work with him. He was part of the Consciousness Collaborative. And somewhere along the way, he said, you know, Joanne, it's okay to expand beyond Preta. It's okay to have other teachers, other experiences so that you can stretch and grow. And I took it seriously and I went out and find other, I went out to find other people that I could learn from. And one of those people was Laura, who was my coach for a number of years. And I would say that for a good nine months of my work with Laura, I was trying to figure out how to manage my relationship with these workshops and with Preeta because something was off and I just, it, nothing quite rang the bell. And there was one time at a workshop, not too long before I ended my reign there maybe six months before. And there had been a participant that I had done a bunch of work with independently um, because she had participated in some things that I offered that I ran. So she was basically one of my clients. And this was during a group breathwork experience and I knew from 
the work that she and I had done together, that she had been experiencing some very powerfully intense breath work at different workshops and yet felt a little bit abandoned in the context of the workshops, that somehow the space wasn't being held for her, that uh, that she needed something more and it wasn't there for her. So I knew that and just tucked it away as a helper at this workshop. My role was just to hold space and create a safe container notice where my energy was pulled at any given time. Sometimes that might might have meant uh, holding someone's feet, maybe putting a hand on their chest or on their belly, maybe holding their head as they were breathing, maybe just reminding them to breathe. But it was mostly staying out of the way and just noticing where, if any place, I was hold to hold space. And so this one particular event, I was pulled to the client that I'm speaking of. And I just sat, I can't remember if it was at her feet or at her head, but I just sat and just physically created a bit of a container, just holding a physical space, I don't even think I said any words to her. It was just holding a physical space. And a a mutual friend who was also a helper came and held the other end. So maybe I was at the head and she was at the feet. And we just held space. Like I said, like a physical container, if you will. And I checked in with myself several times while I was sitting there. Is this where I meant to be right now? Because I wasn't really doing anything. I was just sitting there. And each time the answer was a resounding yes, just stay right here. And that ended up leading to the participant doing some very interesting work with one of the facilitators. Um, When the breath work came to an end, I just offered my back to the participant so that we'd both be sitting on the floor, her back up against my back so she had a place to lean. And one of the facilitators facilitators had come over and did some a lovely piece of work with her. Preto was there for part of it. And when there was no need for her to lean on me, I got up and went down to breakfast. Sometime thereafter, Preta said that something was really off about that exchange, about that experience, that I had been caretaking the participant, that somehow caretaking meaning um, that I didn't trust her to have her own experience and I was 
effectively attempting to protect her, but really I was attempting to protect myself because I was uncomfortable with her experience. I know that's a whole convoluted thing, but the long and the short of it is I was being accused of not being in integrity with myself. And all I could say was that didn't ring true for me at all. In fact, I had even checked in with myself to really see, is this where I'm meant to be right now? And Preeta insisted that I was off and that it was wrong. And, uh, you know, she trusted that participant and I didn't. And, you know, I really need to watch that. And so I worked with Laura on it and Laura said, all right, well, here's the thing. The canary in the coal mine is that you checked in. You really asked spirit, is this where I'm meant to be? And you got a resounding yes, more than once. So I'm with you, Joanne. I think you were meant to be there. It's true. She might be picking up on something that was off, but I don't think it is what she thinks it is. Because what it sounds like to me is that you were the beacon that called over the people who actually helped that participant get what she needed. That whatever energy you were putting out there is what those two facilitators responded to. And that helped that person to get what she needed. And that just hit the gong of truth for me. That was just like, bam, that, it just seemed so on the money for my own experience. And a few months later, when the next workshop was coming around, I realized that I was probably done. It probably wasn't my place or space anymore. And Laura had to give me a lot, a lot, a lot of support to find my way to exiting this venue because I had so many ties and had done so much work and had so very much discovered who I was through the work of these workshops and my experiences with Preeta and the other facilitators. Oh. So to give all of that up was a lot. And yet it was no longer matching where I was meant to be. So I did another workshop and at that particular one, the person who had been a participant was a new helper. And in my best Joey Tribbiani impression, which is horrible, I saw her during a lunch break. We were both outside of the little dorm rooms and I just said, how you doing? And then she started to cry. And this led to her doing a little bit of 
work, a little bit of expression work. And that was happening as the group had started to form. So it was a little bit awkward. Knowing what had happened previously, I asked this now helper if she'd be okay to just wait a moment while I went to get Preeta. And she was, and I went to get Preeta so that Preeta could decide what this person needed instead of me being in that position again of saying that I didn't trust her. And when Preeta came over, uh, interestingly, so did the other helper who had been at the other end of the participant's body during the breath work. So very much the same little group. And I'm, it's funny, I'm having a hard time remembering now if that was actually my last time or not. It might have been, or there could have been one more. Here's what I know, that when I knew it was likely to be my last time, I had an internal dialogue with myself. Do I just go as though it's the same as always and then tell Preeta afterward that I'm done? Or do I tell her in advance that I'm likely to leave after this last one? And from the place of integrity, I found that it mattered that I was able to say up front, this may well be my last one. And when I did tell Preeta that, she told me I couldn't come. And it's a little funny because it reminds me of Personnel Systems International where they walk you to the door, you don't actually give notice. And for over the course of several days, over the course of a week, really, when I got very little sleep, we had many conversations about what this work was for me, what it meant to come to the workshops, why I would, why, excuse me, why I would leave. And ultimately, she did let me come. Part of what I conveyed to her is, look, any time that I have ever seen a helper or a facilitator attempt to leave this group, it has always been a messy, ugly scene. The people are criticized. They are leaving with some sort of, mm, I can't come up with the word right now, but there's always discord. And I really wanted to be able to go out on a high note. I wanted to go out like Seinfeld, where I could still go and contribute in a real way, do the job that I was there for, and end in a gentle, peaceful way so that my last memory of that group, of that experience, of being part of that, 
would remain positive. And so ultimately, Preacher decided that I could come and I could help. It only was going to happen if I worked in her group, which meant that it was me and the other facilitate, excuse me, a helper in that group was also uh, an experienced helper. I was one of the experienced helpers. So Preta had two experienced helpers. That particular time, the experienced helper happened to be my husband. I don't know for sure, but I got the impression that the other facilitators didn't want me in their group because somehow they maybe believed that I would not operate from integrity in the work, which for people who knew me so well for so long, really hurt that they would believe that I would ever not honor the participants and what they were there for. So it could well have been that particular time that I had done my Joey Tribbiani and that this woman who was previously a participant had been a client of mine on and off and was now a helper in this group uh, just kind of fell apart a little bit, just tears streaming down her face. And ironically, I think there's a way that I bailed on her and on myself by running to get Preta because I didn't want to be accused yet again of not trusting her, of caretaking her. I, I didn't want the flack. Several weeks after that workshop ended, something happened that had never happened before, which is that an email went out to all of the helpers and the facilitators to say, let's do a recap. Now this had long been something that different facilitators and helpers had asked for, and it had never happened. And so, and part of the reason is that there are helpers and facilitators in various states. They're, they're not all local. So, um, the notice went out, we're going to have a, a follow-up from that last workshop. And because I was finally getting some clients and really attempting to build my practice, the time that everyone else could do, there were a few times put out and I could do a couple of them, but the time that everyone else could do, I couldn't do. So I said as much and went on to say, but if you decide that you're going to do it as a conference call, I have software that I pay for that you're welcome to use. You could record it and I can listen in afterwards. And it was decided that it was too important um, for everyone not to be there. And so it would be rescheduled. So maybe now a month or six weeks later, finally everyone can be in the room either by phone or meaning speakerphone or actually in the room. And in that room were some of my clients and my associates from the Consciousness Collaborative and my husband. 
And interestingly, it turned into yet another intervention. Whatever the premise was of what the meeting was about, it really became about the fact that I was leaving. Or was I leaving? And if I was leaving, then what was really going on? And although it was at Prita's cabin, it was not Prita who led the group, who led the, that evening, that event. And that situation, that Joey Tribbiani situation that I described to you was brought up by Prita. Once again, you don't trust this person. I trust that person. And I really clearly laid out what had happened and Prita insisted it was something else. And so the participant, the helper, said, no, Preeta, Joanne's right. That's what happened. It was this and this and this. And Preeta said, but Joanne, you did da 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 And then on the phone, the other helper said, well, what happened was this. And it's, it's like what Joanne said. And my part of it was this. And so finally, the person who was facilitating the overall group that night said, Preeta, it sounds like three of the people who were there are saying one thing and your experience was something else. So I'm not sure what that is for you, but it, it sounds like that may not be entirely accurate. And basically everyone said goodbye to me in one way or another. And when I was saying goodbye to Preeta at the very end, everyone else had was already out of their cars or driving away. And she and I had an appointment the next day um, to talk. I was supposed to go back up the next day to talk to her for a therapy appointment, but really to talk about why I was leaving. And I had said, you know, I, I think I've said everything tonight. I don't think I have anything more to add. And she was ballistically angry and turned off and turned in a huff and threw her arms up in the air and said, you're not ready. And I remember just standing there consciously with my arms down. So there was no defensiveness at all. And just saying, I don't know what that means. I don't know what you're talking about. But you seem pretty triggered right now, Preeta. And she just turns back and looks at me and says, fine, we won't meet tomorrow. That's fine. I said, if you have more to say, I'm willing to meet with you tomorrow. I'm telling you, I don't have more to say. No, that's fine. There's nothing else to say. You're just not ready. And for the first time ever in my experience with her, we did not hug. And I left. And in the land of elegant exits, all I can tell you is that it was so very much the right thing for me to go. 
Probably I should have gone earlier, but I couldn't have. If I could have, I would have. If I had been ready and able, if my readiness and willingness had met, I would have left earlier. But I had to go through what I went through. And find it in me to leave when I left. And it was hard in a bunch of ways. It was especially hard between me and my husband because he was so angry that I was leaving this group since it was something that we shared. And it was just a really hard, hard, if you can take what it was like at the end of high school and what it was like leaving Personnel Systems International and what the dress down was like from Waterman's and amplify all of it into one monster experience. That's what it was like to leave this group. And I can't imagine doing it any other way. Because in opening up the space so that I was not at three to four weekend workshops every year. I started traveling all over the world. I started leading my own retreats and workshops in destinations like Costa Rica and South Africa. It became, it opened a huge doorway to me of self-exploration and world exploration. And I still got all of the good stuff that I had learned. I got to take all of the yummy stuff with me, all of the growth and expansion that I had worked for came with me into these new realms. A little bit later, uh, maybe, hmm, maybe a year later, maybe not even a year later, maybe six months later, I had just finished leading a workshop in Costa Rica and I was checking in with my pendulum. It's a dowsing mechanism. It's a, it's a way to hear my own inner truth. And I was checking with my pendulum about the Consciousness Collaborative, this network that I, I had formed uh, seven or eight years before at that point. And the pendulum told me it was time to close the collaborative. And I asked that damn pendulum 15 different ways from Sunday because I thought that can't be right. And it kept coming up. It's time to shut down the collaborative. And so I had a scheme. There were three people who were supposed to be meeting while I was gone. And they were helping to form, they were part of a committee to help move the collaborative forward. And I thought by the time I got back, it would have been like a month 
and there's no way these people were so difficult to wrangle there was no way that they would have met even one time i thought this will be really easy i will just say look there's not the overall investment for everyone to participate and so i'm going to shut it down basically blaming them and so <laughs> this is really hilarious to me um i got back <clears throat> And they hadn't met once. They had met twice while I was gone. So these three people who have these insane schedules had not met once, they'd met twice. They had discussed all kinds of possibilities and directional options and blah, blah, blah. They had totally done their part. And it was the universe's way of saying, Joanne, you have to stand in your own integrity and speak your truth and end it in a real way, in a manner that fits who you are now. And so I spoke to each member individually and I shared my pendulum story and I told them that because my inner guidance system was telling me it was time to close it down that I was going to close it down and I thank them for being part of it. It was a pretty big movement from when I'd been 17 years old and didn't know how to tell my friends that their behavior was offensive to me, to be able to stand in my own power and just honestly tell each person that I was grateful for them to have participated and my time with this was done. And since it was my network, I was closing it down. And once I did, by the way, I got more business than I'd ever had before because that space opened up. So this has been a really long set of stories. And I'm aware that the elegant exit might look messy. It takes practice to find balance in the exit. And when it involves other people, you don't get to always have control over that. You can't control how the other people are going to respond to you standing in your truth and ending what no longer fits for you. So with this, my sweet trust tribe, I thank you for being with me. I encourage you to find the places in your own life where an end is calling to you and where you might stand in your truth and integrity 
and abide by the elegance of exiting. I know it's a stretch, and I believe in you even if you don't believe in yourself, when you just forget. I still really believe that the power is within you to act from a place of integrity and truth. And so I send you my love and I look forward to being with you next time. Be well.